0: Area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you.
1: That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room.
0: Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Yeah?
2: Still left the jingle. Did you miss us? (laughs) Did you miss us? Welcome to Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists and supported by the UK Space Agency. I'm Richard Hollingham.
3: And I'm Sue Nelson. This month, the return to the moon. We'll be talking about the Artemis missions to get humans back on the lunar surface and how to extract oxygen from moon rock.
2: It's also the anniversary of Apollo 16, the penultimate Apollo moon mission. And we'll play you extracts from an interview I recorded in 2018, but that has never been broadcast in full.
1: My name is uh, Charlie Duke. I was uh, astronaut on Apollo 16, 10th man to walk on the moon.
2: It's a great, it's a great interview, actually. <laughs> Quite wide-ranging, I would say, uh, the, the interview.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, I I think I think we're in for a bit of a treat. I, 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 there's a a lot of thought in there, a lot of religious references, and also a lot of sort of honesty from him too.
2: Yeah, it was it was delightful. I won an award for that interview.
3: Oh well, well oh because you've. Yes. Well, not the interviewing. Not the interview. Full. No, I mean, that's no. a little bit disingenuous because you've just said this interview's never been heard, and now know, you say, "Yeah, okay. you didn't. You've actually only used extracts, little f- bits of it. I won an award for the little bits for I used. A few little bits of it, and that's yeah. the point, isn't it? Is that actually you suddenly realise... I've got ninety-five percent of that interview, which I've not used. So, yeah, it's and it's still being edited. It's why we still have a being... podcast. Isn't it, it is indeed. It is indeed. And and for anybody um, astute enough to notice that. Uh, we weren't around last month. March
2: didn't exist. <laughs>
3: March didn't happen. And that's primarily COVID related in terms of guests that we had planned He suddenly came down with COVID. So we had so much on, to be honest, we just thought... Oh, We've so- moved offices. Yes, <laughs> it's we have. It's yeah. slightly
2: weird because our studio is a pod. Within our office, and the pod is exactly the same. We're in the same position, but the office has changed That's, around. Yeah, it. it's
3: like a TARDIS, it isn't is it? It is exactly like a TARDIS. Yeah, yeah, it's quite good. And I like the fact that because in the previous office, there was a separate room, like, you know, as you say, for 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 the sound sound booth. With this one, you can actually look out. I think it looks a bit like a panic room from from the outside, which is why we put this bigger Apollo Eleven poster on it, so it it looked a little bit better than one massive big white panic room. Is that when you look through the door and and the window in the door, you can see our space art on the walls. So that's actually quite cool it um, is it's a yeah, lot lighter you see space art and easily we can pleased.
2: almost see the ducks outside
3: oh yeah that, that's yeah that's the only downside is that uh, we get harassed you're trying to edit something you know your podcast or whatever and all you hear is which i think sounds like the um martian in like in what's it master text good. very good your impression Excellent. Anyway, on with the podcast. That's right. Well, um, the first Artemis mission is sitting on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral as we're recording this podcast. It's going through a series of tests known as a wet dress rehearsal before the launch, which is due later this year. Although the giant SLS rocket is about to be rolled back into the vehicle assembly building to fix some of the issues. But despite all the delays. This is the first step in the return to the moon. The uncrewed, which by the way, spell check keeps changing to unscrewed. <laughs> Just thought I'd let you know that. The uncrewed Artemis 1 mission includes a European service module, which will provide power and propulsion for the Orion capsule for its extended orbit around the moon. And the plan is that Artemis 2 will carry astronauts. And then there'll be that amazing return to the lunar surface with Artemis 3 and the first human footprints back on the moon since 1972. That's 50 years ago. Well, to find out more about the UK's contribution to this historic mission, I spoke to Libby Jackson, the UK Space Agency's Exploration Science Manager. So,
4: the UK, through its membership of the European Space Agency, is building the refuelling parts of the Lunar Gateway. It's a company called Alenia. They're down in Bristol and they are uh, developing this part of it. It's a really key part of the Gateway because the Lunar Gateway, which is a small space station, it's going to orbit the moon, has to stay in the right place. We've got to keep that orbit in the right place. And it does that by burning fuel uh, through its rocket thrusters. There's going to be refueling deliveries uh, essentially fuel tankers coming from earth they will dock with the gateway the fuel transfer and that will be what will allow it to stay in the right position. The technology that is being developed for that Um, can have really good benefits uh, to in-orbit servicing to keep the satellites that we all use every day for data, for telecommunications, for seeing Sky TV, all these sorts of things. We can refuel those as well with the same technology, prolonging their life in space, making space more sustainable, uh, meaning we need fewer satellites, fewer rocket launches. It's really exciting technology that's being developed all as part of uh, returning to the moon.
3: Now, you say a small permanent space station, but when you start talking about, well, it's going to, you know, be used for docking and refueling and going to be astronauts on, I can't help but envisage something the size of the space station in 2001 or so. You know, I I, I don't see small, I see big. How big is this thing going to be or how small is this thing going to (laughs) be? The best comparisons I like to
4: use it are to houses. The International Space Station today is about the size of a five-bedroom flat. It's a 100 metres from end to end. It's got seven crew members living, working there at all times. Gateway is going to be much more like a a bijou studio flat, maybe a (laughs) one-bedroom flat. Very, very small.
3: Just a handful of modules, four crew living there. So actually pretty crowded because if you've got seven people in a five bedroom flat and four people in a one bedroom flat. Yeah, we are talking sort of going camping, really.
4: Oh, yeah. And and it's going to be sort of 30, 60 day missions there. They're not going to live and work there uh, continuously like we do on the space station. Uh, I think the current discussions are perhaps one mission a year, something like that. So it really will be a a much smaller outpost we will still be doing science, we will still be learning how to live and work outside the protection of the magnetic field that, that really protects us all here on Earth from the bombardment of the radiation that comes from the sun. So there's there's definitely good things to, to learn how to do, but we're going to do it on a much smaller scale.
3: It's purely the design phase at the moment. We know how long the space station took to complete and build. Okay, there's just going to be a few modules in in this case, but we're still, sounds like we're talking at least a decade maybe before it gets going.
4: Modules are being designed and built now. The Orion spacecraft that is going to take the crew out to the gateway um, is well in development. We should see the first uncrewed Uh, mission of that later this year. The schedule, as I understand it, is that we're going to see the first modules in two or three years time. And I think by the end of the decade, we'll start seeing it in its fully formed setup.
3: It's a long term project, effectively, but I suppose they've minimise the delays by making it small as well and and uh, uh, that may I think it makes it much more achievable and so other than Gateway are there any other aspects that the UK is is taking an interest in in particular? We are seeing a a real
4: resurgence in the interest in the Moon and as well as the Lunar Gateway and the Orion spacecraft that will go there and the the lunar landings We are going to see lots of robotic landers landing on the moon, really pushing forward the science and our understanding of the moon. For example, we've got the Peregrine lander, which is going to launch later this year. It's going to be the first of the commercial lunar landers that uh, NASA have been developing. And on board that, we have an instrument that's been developed here in the UK. It's called the Peregrine Ion Trap Mass Spectrometer, or or PITMs. And it's going to measure the the water and uh, molecules in the atmosphere around the Moon. There really is a very, very thin atmosphere on the Moon. We think of it as a a barren place. But by detecting these molecules and atoms, we're going to understand much more about the environment in the Moon. Uh, We're starting to think about could we use the water that we know is trapped in the poles there, Yeah, so that's one of the things that are coming. We've got other spacecraft that are going. So all these missions that are heading back to the moon, they're going to need to communicate with Earth and eventually um, also know where they are on the moon. Here on Earth, we are very used to sat nav, satellite navigation, GPS, the European Union's Galileo system that are coming. And we're looking at doing something similar on the moon. So all of these robotic landers that are going, the crew and missions that will go, they will know exactly where they are and they can have sat nav on the moon. There's a UK mission called Lunar Pathfinder, which is being developed by Surrey Satellites, which is going to be a commercially operated communication system that's coming in the next few years that's being built now. And that's going to enable communications for all of these missions that are going to talk Uh, Back to Earth. And if that goes well, we want to take the next steps and develop it into a whole satellite navigation constellation uh, called Moonlight. And we'll see that happen in the next decade. So the UK really is playing its part in this return to the Moon, in the Artemis mission, in the crew that will go to the Gateway. And all of these amazing scientific missions that are going to land on the moon and tell us much more about the moon, how the Earth was formed, how it all fits into the solar system, all these fantastic questions.
3: Libby Jackson from the UK Space Agency. It's quite exciting, this, because over the years... We've spoken
2: to a lot of Brits on the podcast who've been involved in the Apollo programme and they were recruited by NASA over the years. You've met some.
3: Yeah, yeah, in Florida. In in Florida.
2: And it turns out there are really quite a lot who worked on it, but they're kind of hidden figures because Britain wasn't involved in the Apollo programme. And also most of
3: them were engineers who were recruited to go and work over and now settled in and are now American citizens. So it's really quite nice to... uh, to to hear about them in 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 their words, but it's yeah, it's a new generation now, and they're they're a, a hell of a lot younger. But I like the fact that it's
2: an. <laughs> what well, my point is, it's an international project. The UK is involved. Europe, European and Canada countries and are involved. Areas, yes. uh, Canada, Japan, and it's not just NASA. My fear is that NASA will take the credits.
3: Well. <laughs> They, that's what they do, isn't it? I mean, they, yes. We, I know, we always make little pointed references about this, and if you're listening to us in America, you have to forgive us. But that's 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 just what sometimes they do. It becomes NASA's Hubble Space Telescope, for instance, and it's not. You know, it's there's loads of European contributions. I always write the you. international. Yes, the international, Space and and yeah, and that's the same with. Uh, with Artemis. And in fact, you could argue that the European service module, you know, without that, nothing's
2: happening. That is very true. <laughs> although we should probably say that the vast majority of taxpayers' money that's going into this is from American citizens and not from us. Yes.
3: And we never said we didn't like you. <laughs> and we never said we don't appreciate it. I think you should stop it.
2: speaking now.
3: Okay. Yeah, yeah.
2: Now, these missions are the first steps to a permanent base on the moon. <laughs> i'm trying not to speak is that another one of your animal or yes. animal <laughs> yes,
3: impressions yes, that's another alien
2: now these missions are the first steps to a permanent base on the moon but for that to succeed it'll need to be at least partly self-sufficient with its own power water and oxygen well, power comes from the sun water well as Libby mentioned there's ice in craters at the poles but what about oxygen? Well, one idea is to extract it from moon rock. It's being developed for the European Space Agency, ESA by talus Alenia Space, and the method they're using is called the FFC process. That's invented at the University of Cambridge. It involves dipping moon rock in molten salt and passing a current through it. The process is difficult enough on Earth, but on the moon. John Verbleskis is the company's planetary engineering specialist, and I started by asking him what's in moon rock?
0: It's aluminium oxide, iron oxide, or titanium oxide, and um, we use a process to remove the oxygen from that oxide and leave the metal as a byproduct.
2: So you'll be extracting the oxygen and leaving metal, which presumably you could also
0: use. Exactly. And that's the principle of the in-situ resource utilisation approach, is looking to see what we have available to us on on the surface of the Moon and finding the most efficient way of using those resources for things we need on the Moon.
2: Traditional smelting processes on Earth of of extracting usually metal from, from ore... They're incredibly energy intensive we see enormous factories, big smelting mills, tremendous amounts of energy you 've got to massively scale this down, presumably in the first instance, just for proof of concept
0: yes, and we 're only extracting hundreds of grams of oxygen with I think three hundred grams of moon regolith or moon soil going into the process, and the regolith is is just very, very difficult to handle it is been compared to toothpaste more than sand because of it's the nature of its formation it's it just very very sticky. The advantage of the FFC process is that it's lower temperature than other processes the disadvantage is that in order to extract the oxygen we have to heat up salt in which we dip the regolith or soil into the molten salt and pass an electrical current through it so the amount of heat we use and the temperature we use are, are, are massive design drivers. What sort of yeah. temperature are we talking about? About 700, 800 centigrade. Right. So is, you've,
2: got to, you've got to generate that. Presumably, you've got, I mean, you've got lots of sunshine, haven't you? That's your energy yes. source, presumably. Yes.
0: The, the good news is that we have lots of sunshine. So we can use that sunshine during the lunar day. But then also, we have to cool it down. We want to do several cycles. On the moon, there is no atmosphere. The atmosphere, especially the, the lovely thick atmosphere we've got on Earth, acts as a kind of insulation and temperature distribution. So if you want to cool something down on Earth, you you blow air onto it, blow gas onto it, and that takes away the temperature. On the Moon, there is no gas, so we can't have any convection. So we, we rely on conduction and radiation for heat transfer. Some ways that is easier, in some ways it is more difficult.
2: Uh, and this is for a mission that's not actually been designed yet. Is that is that right? It be some sort of remote
0: lander. It's for a, an application maybe or a service that's not been designed for. There is the intention to have more human presence on the moon, and when they're on the moon, they will need resources to allow them to do what they want. The mission that we're we're designing, we're designing a payload which will do the demonstration. And we're looking at several different landers to accommodate this mission in the next few years. So essentially, we have a box, maybe 800 millimetres by 800 millimetres by 600 millimetres, plus a robotic arm and uh, an end effector. And we're looking to see how best we can accommodate that payload on different landers not just the ESA or NASA landers that are foreseen to, to land on the Moon in, in the long term, but possibly short term on, on some of these commercial landers.
2: This is the big picture, though, isn't it? That, y- And you, you touched on it there. It, it's sustainability. It's going back to the Moon to be able to stay for a while rather than having to keep bringing all the resources from Earth all the time.
0: Yes, yes. And, and the intention is to have a permanent presence on, on the Moon rather than the, the visits which Apollo did, and it's all about the sustainability and, and making sure that we can have an infrastructure on, on the moon's surface that will s- sustain a community to and um, provide them with the resources they need to do what they want to do.
2: And what sort of timescale are we talking about for that? Because I mean, you're talking about building a proof of concept device for a lander that's not been necessarily commissioned yet, and it's small you've got to i mean there's a lot to do isn't there for any of this to be long term sustainable
0: it's small steps it's, it's it's a very difficult technology to use on, on the surface of earth and we would just like to try and use it on on the surface of the moon another aspect for for the testing is the lower gravity on the surface of the moon so we we're looking at doing parabolic flights instead of 0g having 1 6g to demonstrate some of the material handling processes that we have.
2: It must be quite exciting, though, working on projects that will take humans back to the moon. And this is not just a, an American endeavour. This is a, an international endeavour, or at least a European, American, Canadian, Japanese endeavour.
0: That's right. But exciting means difficult. It, it's <laughs> it, 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 we, we wouldn't be doing the testing if we knew it, it would work look forward to the day that I can look up to the surface of the moon and, and um, probably identify exactly where the, the lander is and, and then think you know the land is working up there.
2: John Vobleskis from Talus Alenia Space in the UK I love his position he's the company's planetary engineering specialist but he says he doesn't actually engineer any planets. So I mean, thought thought he like... he's
3: not a specialist. <laughs> no, he's very,
2: very, much a specialist. There, okay. there are very few people that that do his job. I would say in the world. Yeah, it was. But it's
3: interesting, really, because when I was at, um, you know, pre-pandemic, where well, I was making a program with dallas campbell i think it was either dallas or wally it's easy to get the no, two it was mi- dallas your the moon two, program yeah the two mixed up yeah. uh i made a program about the moon with with wally though um and we were at the oh what's that place in cologne um
2: european astronaut center
3: yeah that's it's The DLR next to Cologne Airport. I think that's where... Actually, I think it was the ESA, the the Cologne building. They've got um, engineering work there that looks into extracting oxygen or fuel cells, but using... Obviously, you've got ice. um, Ice is water, H2O, which makes me think, well, wouldn't it be a lot easier just to extract (laughs) the oxygen from water? But I know that's... that's,
2: the, The advantage of this is also you end up with metal. So you're extracting it from metal oxides, you end up with some powdered metal that you could use for 3D printing. So you've got, you know, a two-stage potential process. So actually process. the idea and would be to do,
3: use both methods then.
2: Possibly. Um, it's also very, it's very much a proof of concept.
3: Because you, you need hydrogen. You can use hydrogen for fuel if you if you separate water. You've got your oxygen that you could use as your byproduct. And if you also do it the rock way, then you need that 3D printing
2: also, the water is probably at the poles rather than any water necessarily in craters. But, but they're planning in the, the places, the bases there
3: by the South Pole, aren't they? So well, that's, that's why, one and that's plan. why. Yeah, and that's that's why. one plan. Yeah. yeah. So we're both right. Of course, we are both right. (laughs) There
2: are lots of ideas kicking around. I just want to see some of this stuff happening. It it very much seems, though, we're on track, particularly looking at the the world at the moment and the state of the world at the moment. It's very much like the plot of For All Mankind, that series on Apple,
3: Oh yes, where
2: now we're talking about, it's Mm. almost like it's almost back to that Cold War period where we're talking about... A race game. We're talking about you know going back to the moon, having a base. Well, but... cons-
3: considering the um, issues with Russia and Ukraine at the moment, I really would not want to see that a sort of Russian attack on the moon base as you do <laughs> it for all mangat spoiler. Uh, but that that was that was pretty shocking. That wasn't it? It was
2: terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. That I love the, the husband and wife couple though. At the end,
3: I know. And the
2: tape. Oh, we mustn't give
3: that away. <laughs> No we haven't. No. We haven't. No, but no that that was great. Yeah. This is Space Boffins by the way not a film review podcast but we're in um partnership with the Naked Scientists.
2: Film podcasts are really popular, you know, you know, the most um, popular, the most popular podcast okay. in, the, in the UK. I wish
3: we were <laughs> TV podcast. and film podcasts then.
2: The most popular podcast in the UK is, is a film and, and TV podcast. Um, do get in touch via all the uh, socials, uh, ideas, thoughts, comments or welcome. If you like the podcast, do tell people. If you don't, don't tell people. <laughs> I mean, why do we say that? I don't know. And why do we say that in the middle? You know, know, it's on this like think... list of things. things well, I wouldn't pod... bother to well, be honest but you, know, you but you there's won't a list of things podcasters are meant to do. So you're meant to always get people to engage. That's the idea. You get people to subscribe. Although the word "subscribe" is out at the moment because that implies payment, and obviously there isn't any payment <sighs> for podcasts. We're giving this content away free.
3: Yeah, so no one can complain. Quite frankly, because <laughs> no, you're getting exactly, it for nothing. That's right. Well, if you do complain, I'll be come round now. <laughs> Stop. Speechless. Stop. speechless. Sorry, I'm getting a bit a bit aggressive. Yeah, though. that's right.
2: Okay. Uh, let me take you back to a calmer period. Let me take you back to Houston in April 1972.
1: This is Apollo Control, 101 hours, 50 minutes ground elapsed time. manned Spacecraft Centre Director, Dr. Christopher C. Kraft Jr. Just came back into the control centre after having attended a meeting by management people in one of the back rooms, and the situation is go for landing. To reaffirm, we do have a go for landing. Evolution number 16, that decision will be passed up to the crew at acquisition of signal some seven minutes from now as they come around the front side of the moon. The new maneuver... Timelines will be read up to the crew for circularization by the command module and power descent and landing by Lunar Module Orion. Repeat again, we are go for landing.
2: Orion was the landing module for Apollo 16. On board, Commander John Young and lunar module pilot Charlie Duke. Well, I interviewed Charlie in 2018 for a programme I was making for Radio 3 on astronauts and religion called Message from the Moon. Now, as you probably know, he's a born-again Christian. And it was an absolute privilege to talk to him about both space and his faith uh, the original radio program was focused on the mission of apollo 8 that's the first crewed mission to orbit the moon so some of this interview has never been broadcast or podcast before we're going to talk about all the apollo missions and charlie duke's mission apollo 16 we began though by chatting about the significance of the apollo 8 crew reading from the bible's book of genesis on christmas eve 1968
1: In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. We were watching the TV, and uh, that was really moving to me when the crew uh, started doing that reading from... Genesis in the beginning God created and it was a very very significant time for us. We were uh, Christians at the time but uh, just in name only actually. We were in an Anglican church in uh, LaPorte, Texas and we actually lived next door to Bill Anders, uh, one of the crewmen and so it was really significant for my wife and me. Very moving on Christmas Eve.
2: And I think it's, it's moving whether you believe or you don't believe. There's something about those words and the fact they came from the moon.
1: Yes, it is. You know, I wasn't a real student of the scripture back in those days, but uh, it's become very, very significant to me. In the beginning, God, you know, it really focused you in from there, the whole rest of the Bible, what God has done in the creation. And uh, so uh, now as a real believer, I see that much more significantly than I did back then.
2: And the mission itself, I mean, it's it's audacious to go to the moon on just the first crewed manned flight of
1: the Saturn V. You're right. What was uh, audacious and uh, very risky was sending the spacecraft out there with no backup. Once they lost uh, a left Earth orbit, it had to work every event had to work or they would have been trapped in space or lost in space and so uh, it was a very very significant uh, a very ambitious uh, very risky they were willing to do it NASA was willing to do it so it took a lot of courage on management's part to say okay we're going to do it and we did it it was pulled it off it's fantastic. And just looking at those missions the 7, 8, 9 and 10
2: the, the importance of those as, as building blocks to do what ultimately you did, were able to do in Apollo 16.
1: That's right. I thought the, the uh, plan of Apollo to uh, 8 was basically to check the command module out again, but they decided to go to the moon with that. Then 9 was the lunar module checkout. 10 was to take uh, the lunar module to the moon and do the preliminary descent and then abort back up, but it proved the whole system. Uh, I was in Mission Control Capcom doing uh, that that flight. And then, of course, the first attempt we had was successful with Apollo 11. Barely, I should say. Well, I mean, it was successful, but we were almost uh, running out of gas and uh, a lot of problems in that descent. But uh, there again, Mission Control uh, pulled it off, and so did the crew. Great job.
2: Mm -hmm. Just tell me, before we go back to the moon and and religion, just tell me about your involvement in in Apollo 10. What were your experiences of Apollo 10?
1: Uh, I was the called support crew. We had three crews on Apollo, the prime crew who would fly the mission, the backup crew who would take their place in case of an emergency, and then the support crew. And the support crew was basically a gopher. You go do this, you go do that. Whatever the crew didn't have time to do, you did. Checklist preparation, storage uh, meetings, And then since I did the descent procedures development for Apollo 10, they asked me to be in mission control as Capcom. So during that descent, uh, I was in uh, mission control as uh, Capcom. And Gene Kranz was the flight director. So we had trained a couple of months together. And uh, I just fell in love with mission control. I felt like I was one of the team. And they accepted me as one of the team. So we had a very cohesive crew.
2: What was that like, that descent? Because I interviewed... Gene Cernan a few months before he he sadly died and he was sort of beating himself up about that that getting the switches wrong. I just wonder what it was like in Mission Control. Was there any sense of that drama?
1: Well before we knew what was happening uh, it was over (laughs) and uh, what was that but just a quick change of attitude uh, and uh, our flight controllers uh, missed it. Uh, We didn't realize that they had uh, another attitude keyed into the abort guidance system so when they switched to the abort guidance system that was that fast maneuver and I forgot it was very emphatic what Gene said but that was really the only problem that we in, encountered and that was uh, uh, just uh, unexpected it wasn't really a problem it did exactly what it was supposed to do when you flip the switch uh, we just failed to get them in the same attitude so they wouldn't have that rapid maneuver it was uh, a really really successful mission. The 64 and 8200. Pro. Pitch over. Pitch over. Huh? And here it is. Gator. Lone Star. Rude on. i the same, Charlie. OK. 40 degrees. 38
3: degrees. Right.
2: Down on dot. North range. OK. I was listening like we'll back to, to your, your job job landing, and it sounds, the last few minutes, last four minutes is on YouTube,
1: and it sounds exuberant. You sound very excited. Oh, yeah. You can imagine as you approach the moon. From 7,000 feet uh, you look down and it, it, you see the moon for the first time and you can you we recognize the two major craters in our landing area and and I hollered out to John hey there they are John lone star gator and uh, and and I'm looking to the right to one of our objectives and John starts fussing at me said give me some numbers and he has to know where the computer's landing him leading him to so I started came in back inside and started feeding him the information he needed to, to land. And he made a few maneuvers, a few changes, and uh, but picked out a spot that was very uh, level, turned out. And uh, uh, it got very exciting, the lore we got. They started blowing out moon dust, and we were coming straight down. Then he stopped at 20 feet off the moon, and I was, come on, give me one click down, which gave us one foot per second down. So 20 seconds later, we touched down, and and mission complaint, and I hollered to mission control, "Ol' Orion is finally here, Houston, fantastic. So I was really excited, and so was John. Now you look back at
2: that, now you're a committed Christian. How do your impressions of that experience change when you sort of look back at you standing on the moon? Yeah,
1: let me start with the first view of Earth we had on the way out. When we turned our spaceship around to retrieve the lunar module, my job was just to monitor the communications and the electrical system. So I'm looking out the window, and the, and the Earth floats into the view. And we could see the whole circle of the Earth and uh, the Arctic Circle down across Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Central America. And there was the blue of the oceans, the white of the snow and the clouds, the brown of the land, And that jewel of earth was just hung in the blackness of space. And now I look back and I see in Isaiah, the scripture says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. I said, wow, when I discovered that, I said, i seen the circle of the earth with these eyes. And uh, then in the book of Job, it says, when God made the earth, he suspended it upon nothing. And that's exactly what it looks like. So I realize scripture speaks the truth. And so I look back now and uh, on all of that experience, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And not one nation, not one language uh, on under heaven does not understand what God has done through the creation of the heavens. And so it, that's the way I see it now. Uh but, of course, back then it was just, wow, look at the beauty of this. Actually, when we saw the Earth rise from behind the moon from the first time, my first thought was, we are a long way from home. I hope this thing holds together and gets me back.
2: <laughs> oh, and What are your thoughts about that now, that, that Earth rise? Because, I mean, that obviously was one of the biggest achievements of Apollo 8, yeah. inadvertently, yeah. the Earthrise image. What's your view of that now?
1: It's breathless, uh, almost breathtaking, I should say, when you see that rise up behind the uh, lunar surface, that barren gray of the lunar surface as uh, as the, you see the shadows uh, uh, on the surface and the, the craters and the, that magnificent moon. And you look up, and there is this jewel. It's the only color in the sky that we could see. And uh, there it was, and uh, just suspended and uh and and so we just were glued to the window really and looking out and what we were seeing and uh and just uh took some pictures of course and one thing i look back on now i wish we'd have just taken more pictures because uh, uh we had a film budget and we didn't want to wow oh, we got a, a, only so many frames for this that and the other but we should have taken more time and taken more pictures of that but we got some good ones
2: what about looking the other way, out into space? You talked about
1: looking down at the, the jewel of the Earth. You've talked about the Earth around the moon. Uh, when the sun is shining from Earth to moon, which is the whole time, when the sun is shining on a spacecraft, you don't see any stars. The only two objects you can see or that you can look at are the moon and the Earth. Sun's visible, of course, but it's, we didn't have filters and stuff to look at it with our naked eye. So... You look out, and you, and like daylight on Earth, you don't see the stars when it's daylight. Same as in space. There's the reflections through the spacecraft, even if you put up the windows and, and uh, the shades and turn off the lights, you look out and you still don't see any stars. Uh, we had cameras trying to take pictures of the stars in daylight. Very fast film. The best cameras are made, and when you develop the film, it's just black. So uh, it... It's just the blackness of space, but it's it's incredibly beautiful. It's velvety. You feel like you can reach out and touch it. So it was a very moving experience to look out and see all that blackness. I wonder how it changed your perception, and
2: maybe, again, talking now, of our position and our
1: place in, in the universe. At the time, it wasn't really significant. But now I look back and I see that... Uh, that God has uh, created the life on earth. He's given this ideal planet to live on, uh, to sustain life of all types. Uh, he is, uh, it, it was in charge of the creation. Uh, I look back now and I believe not in evolution, but I believe in a creation by uh, God uh, of everything, the heavens, the stars, which he calls each by name, uh, life on the Earth, and I believe it's, uh, it, it's that process is described in Genesis. Uh, and um, so I've come from an old Earth, uh, ancient days, to a young Earth, and uh, uh, I have a lot of arguments with people about that. Well, what about this? And I said, look, it's it's a matter of faith. You can't prove your point, and I can't prove my point scientifically. So we both stand on a matter of faith. What do you believe? And belief is faith. I believe in God's creation. I used to believe in accidental life, and here we are, you know, four billion years later or whatever, Uh, but uh, I've changed my mind. But I remember a couple of times now, as we stood up on the side of Stone Mountain uh, which was our second day out, uh, and I could look across the Descartes plains and the, uh, the Cayley Plains and see all the way across the horizon and that sharp lunar horizon and then looking up into the blackness of space that was probably is nearer to a spiritual experience that I had. Wow, this is amazing. What an opportunity that, uh, that I have, and I thank God every day for Lord let thank you for letting me go to the moon. And I've had a prophecy all my life. He says, you didn't know it, Charlie, but I ordained that you would walk on the moon. Because I will use that for my glory in the future.
2: When we start, I mean, we've got the uh, International Space Station now talk about going back to the moon. To what extent do you think it's important that we take our beliefs with us into into space as, as humans leave the earth?
1: Well, God is everywhere. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So I think if you are a believer, uh, that will go, God will go with us. And uh, it would be hard to say that, okay, everybody's got to be a Christian or everybody's got to be religious, not necessarily so. But I I certainly, uh, if I had a chance to go again, I would see it uh, through the eyes of our creator. And I hope he would give me the eyes to see it and to understand and to glorify him uh, with everything that we discover and uh, and we do scientifically, I really important i really think it 's important that God wants us to uh, develop our understanding of of uh, humanity and uh, science and understanding the the unknowns right now in science that we 're maybe struggling to understand but but by prayer we Apollo thirteen for instance uh, a lot of the engineers in there were uh, christians and uh And they honor God by giving him credit for the inspiration they did to solve the problems that we had so that we could get them back safely.
2: What do you say to people then who say that, you know, you can't have this engineering a space program and have religion? You're saying that the two should go hand in hand.
1: Uh, Yeah, they do. Uh, The argument is uh, science versus religion. But science can never prove evolution. What the question really is, evolution versus creation. And you can never prove It is not a scientific experiment that you can devise to prove unequivocally that evolution is true. On my side of the creation, there is not a scientific experiment that we can devise and implement that will prove that God created it. So they believe what they believe. I believe what we. Bl- I believe. So both are just... Uh, creation is just as scientific as evolution, and evolution is just as religious as creation. It's a matter of faith. What do you believe?
2: Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, one of only four now surviving moonwalkers, uh, the others being Buzz Aldrin, Dave Scott, and Harrison Smith. Uh, and I should just say... And I always know we we plug our programmes relentlessly on this podcast, but as we said earlier, you're getting this for free. (laughs) Um, Message from the Moon is still available on BBC Sounds and the BBC website. If you look for it, there are two versions. There's a World Service version, which is great, and there's a Radio 3 version, which is better. <laughs> so, You're allowed to say that. I right? am allowed to say, yeah, because it's the original, yeah, it's the no, original one. And but it's it often when you doesn't have yeah. any narration in it. I won an award for that, so I've been really? making. You, yes, you've hardly
3: mentioned <laughs> it. I've been yeah. making
2: science programs for how, how many years? Four hundred and seven. The most significant award I won was for a program on religion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Anyway. Ah and that's been space boffins um i'm not going to say interact with us on social media because if you're going to do it you're going to do it It'd
2: be nice though wouldn't it i mean well know, to be I honest like some feedback, i you know, you know.
3: It, yeah but i don't often remember it's been very busy lately it's been really really busy um that's the thing i mean we don't have someone to do our social media for us we've both got full-time that's, as jobs is, as
2: is blatantly obvious yeah
3: so you know sometimes i do go on there and and, and i do engage with people it's usually me rather than you that that, oh, yeah, that, that yeah. does it so i don't know why you're encouraging people because you don't <laughs> even bloody well do it yourself but um yeah, it is nice when people, I mean, I do like the space community is an incredibly nice one. And in, in a, a sort of um, a period of time where everything seems so negative, understandably so, because political situations around the world, it is nice to just, you know, think, oh, look, there's an eclipse of Phobos On Mars, that you can see from the Martian surface. And oh, look, it was taken by the Perseverance rover. You know, those sort of little things, um, are just great. So yeah, if you've got any, um, nice comments, basically, we, we, I'm very, very happy, um, to hear from you. Thanks to the UK Space Agency, by the way, for their continued support. And thank you. For listening. We'll be back next month with another astronaut, this time a Shuttle One astronaut and artist, Nicole Stott.